I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, where readers meet writers. You can find new interviews every week. On Christmas Day of 1740, a British squadron of ships on a secret mission were in danger. Their quarry knew they were in pursuit. They were plagued by sickness. Some of the captains of the ships had died, and one of them had delivered a grim prediction on his deathbed. The mission, he warned, would end in poverty, vermin, famine, death, and destruction. It would also end in a court-martial with wildly competing stories of what had really happened. David Grand's new book is titled The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. And he joins us from New York. Good morning. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you. I've positioned us early on in this mission that this squadron of ships has embarked on. They have been sent to sea for what you call outright thievery. So (laughs) can you describe, I love that, can you describe what this squadron of five warships and a scouting ship have been ordered to do? So yes, during an imperial war between Great Britain and Spain, this squadron has been given a secret order, a secret mission, which is to go around, sail around Cape Horn, some of the most violent seas in the world, and then into the Pacific to try to intercept a Spanish galleon filled with so much treasure, it was known as the prize of all the oceans. So this is the reason you're calling this outright thievery is because, I mean, this is a ship that is also uh, operating for its crown, the Spanish crown, and the mission is to go take over the ship and take their stuff, take take, their riches, Basically to take – Spain had plundered its colonies, and I think that's important to underscore. This is stolen wealth by Spain, and then Great Britain hopes to steal the stolen wealth of Spain for itself, to take Spanish plunder and make a British plunder. Um, And this ship traveled uh, twice a year. Um, a ship was sent by the Spanish crown between Mexico with plunder to mm-hmm. the Philippines and to use all that wealth, which was about $80 million worth of coins in today's money, wow. uh, to purchase Asian commodities. Um, so it was a critical link in Spain's global empire. We should note that I've described this as a squadron of ships. So it's a group of ships the Centurion and the Wager are among them. And those ships are loaded down with extra men, so the ships are crowded. And that ends up being pretty important when illness befalls the ships, the crews, and the captains. I mean, how are how is this squadron of ships provisioned for this mission that they're embarking on? And how confident are they that they're going to see the mission through? Well, it's, I think the seeds of destruction for the wager and much of the expedition were planted um, at the very beginning. Um, like so many wars, there was a great clamor for war, but the public was unwilling to pro- properly fund it. And the squadron was short of men. And, um, and, the, and the, uh, at that time, Britain did not have cons- conscription and it had exhausted its supply of volunteers. So the Admiralty dispatched press gangs to round up any mariners in towns and ports and cities, anyone who had the telltale signs of a seaman's clothing or even the tar on the fingertips. Tar was used on a ship, so many of you had tar on your fingers, you were likely a seaman. And they were basically forced to go on this expedition. So many of the men were pressed, recalcitrant. Even after the pressing, they were short men. So the Admiralty took the extreme step of rounding up soldiers from a retirement home, many of whom were in their 60s and 70s, were missing an assortment of limbs from various battles in the past. Some of them were so sickly, they had to be lifted onto the ships on stretchers. So all of these people are packed onto the vessels. And one of the things that made these ships so interesting is that they really were these floating civilizations in which strangers from all walks of life would be thrown together. You would have city paupers and aristocrats. You would have professionals and craftsmen. You would have free black seamen. And the Admiralty had a pretty good, the British Navy had a pretty good reputation for being able to form these 
kind of fractious individuals into a band of brothers. But the challenge is facing the wager and the expedition with so many sickly recalcitrant and press men was enormous. Uh, David, how how well understood do you think the people that were, the men who were press ganged and the, the men who were brought out of retirement and even some of the people who willingly signed on, how aware were they of exactly what this mission was going to was going to mean? I mean, where they were going to go and how dangerous it was going to be once they got close to Cape Horn. I think many of them would have known it was a long voyage. It was going to last as long as three years. Certainly they would have heard tales of the legend of Cape Horn, but, you know, very few European seamen have been around Cape Horn. And so there would have been, you know, few, if any, who had any experience in those seas to be able to kind of report back. I think some of them were filled with dreams of glory and the lust for treasure. Um, There was, a, as we discussed, a whiff of piracy about this mission, and seamen were tempted by the tantalizing prospect of a share of the treasure in those days. So I think they had some sense it was perilous, but I don't think they could have fathomed what they were about to encounter and just how badly everything was going to go. What did maps of, of this area look like in the day? So um, there were some loose you know, charts of the day. Magellan uh, had gone around the world, and so there was certainly a circulation of charts. But seamen in that day um, were at a huge disadvantage in trying to chart um, because they didn't know ever where they were precisely on a map. Um, They could determine their latitude rather easily by reading the stars, something that had been done for ages. But they had no means of determining their longitude because that required reliable clocks, which had not yet been invented for a ship. And so they had to rely on what was called dead reckoning, which, you know, to simplify amounted to uh, essentially a leap of faith and and informed guesswork. Uh, And there was a reason why it was called dead reckoning. So they're sailing on this mission on charts partially blind. Wow. I mean, so what they're looking at are, as you've said, kind of half charts, observations, stories about what it's like in these faraway oceans. They really have no idea what they're about to encounter and how treacherous these seas are. Is that fair to say? I think that is 100% fair to say. We should also note that the captains of, of, the, of the day had a lot of power You note that one historian says captains could be as powerful as kings in their own domain on the ship. Talk to us a bit about the the characteristics and the personalities of the the men who were captaining the ships in the squadron. Yeah. So um, a ship was very uh, regimented and and hierarchical. Uh, Everybody on the ship, from the pinnacle of rank to the lower rank, kind of had a station, a place they they stood on the ship and what their job might be. Um, and they really had to operate in a very unified way because any kind of inefficiency, drunkenness, um, discontent, revolt could lead to disaster on a ship. And the captain was at the pinnacle. It was reflected in his, in his cabin. He had, you know, even in those days, so real estate was marked by your, by your status. So he had the biggest captain was known as the great captain. Um, And, you know, there's a stereotype of a lot of commanders back then of of kind of ruling by the lash. And there were many who did, or there were some that did. But the most skillful commanders um, uh, understood that you had to kind of lead through cajoling, inspiring, guiding, teaching, sympathizing, uh, not merely by the lash. Uh, One other important point to point out about commanders at that day is that they, generally speaking, came from the aristocracy. You could work your way up on a ship uh, fairly high, but to become a commissioned officer like a commanding officer, you tended to come from the ranks of the wealthy. Hmm. I think we ought to say something about the sanitary conditions on the ships, too. Wow. Some of the descriptions 
of yes. what these men encountered and endured are pretty mind-blowing. What was it like uh, as far as keeping the ship, you know, ship shape and clean? Wasn't it almost impossible? Yeah, well, so the, I mean, one thing that's important to say is that these ships were in many ways the engineering marvels of their time. Um, they, uh, um, you know, had three masts. Uh, they could fly as many as 12 to 18 sails or more, depending on how large the warship is. Um, yet, though they were these kind of lethal instruments, because not only were they homes of sailors, they were also warships. They were murderous instruments. Um, yet, though they were these very sophisticated instruments, they were made of very perishable materials, which was wood. As many as 4,000 trees could be used to build one warship. And so they were very susceptible to all the elements, to shipworm, which would bore through the wooden holes, to termites, to rats, which would eat the sails and gnaw through the food and provisions. And then on this expedition, um, because of its ambitious nature, the ships were packed uh, with more men than they usually carried. The wager carried about 250 men, which was twice the number it was designed for. So they were packed extremely tightly on a 123-foot ship on the wager. Um, the seamen would sleep next to each other with only about a foot apart in a hammock, and during the rough ways, they would jostle. And then, of course, as they're coming around Cape Horn, um, you know, the you know, keeping these ships clean was difficult. And then they began to suffer from various diseases. I mean, early on, they suffer from typhus. And then, of course, they suffer from one of the worst outbreaks of scurvy ever oh, recorded in oh, maritime history. Gosh. We're going to talk about the symptoms of that. I had no idea. Either <laughs> did I before I did the research. I now know I don't <laughs> oh, want scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those lemons and limes nearby. Hey, just a question about this. I assume that, you know, they would set sail with provisions, but they counted on landing and reprovisioning, right? And so that if you got into a situation where you couldn't, you, you got, you know, you were astray and you couldn't get to land, the food would diminish pretty quickly, I'd imagine. Is all that right? Yeah, that is true. So two things, they were loaded with thousands of tons, I mean, tons and tons of provisions. I mean, you know, you know, there'd be 40 miles of rope on a, on a, on a, on a, on a ship, you know, one ship, I mean, right. just the level. And then for food, they would have to pack them with food. So they would be loaded with, um, uh, you know, flour and bread and, uh, pickled meat. Now, it's important to underscore, there was no refrigeration back then. So provisions could decay over time, and you couldn't take anything that needed to be in a fridge. So you didn't really have vegetables and fruits. Um, and um, they would bring some livestock on board. That was usually mostly for the officers, um, but they would be exhausted pretty quickly. So you're, you know, the bread would slowly harden. And, you know, by the time they reach Cape Horn, they're described them being just eaten with worms. And if you hit your little mm. bread, you're <laughs> against the mm. table, it would just dissolve into <laughs> dust. Uh, and some of the meat had begun to decay. Uh, and so, yes, they would stop to, to restock. But even when they had to restock, they always confronted this issue of they didn't have refrigeration. They also didn't have a good understanding of nutrition. So they didn't realize how important vegetables and fruits were to their safety. Oh. You're listening to a conversation with David Gran about his new book, The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. And you've heard us kind of set this up. Uh, David is describing a secret mission that a squadron of ships are sent on in the mid-1700s. And what happens as they try to pursue this other, this Spanish ship that is loaded with treasure, uh, and what happens when ships start to disappear from the squadron and a couple of the ships go astray? And that's really only when the story begins. So yes. <laughs> it's good to have yes. you listening this morning. Um, it's the first so, stage of hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Among many. All right. So there we are on Christmas with the squadron of ships on the island of St. Catherine, and they are off the coast of Brazil. And Captain Kidd, who is dying, uh, what is he dying of, 
David, you know, we never know, but most okay. it, it, most likely from scurvy, but it could have also been scurvy. from typhus, and it is possible that it might have even been yellow fever uh, since ah. in that part of the world. Okay, so he's dying, and he makes this fearsome prophecy that I've described in the introduction. Do the sailors have reason, I guess, at this point to believe that they just might be on an endeavor here? And that that prophecy might come true, that that they are somehow uh, destined for, you know, for the kind of experience that Captain Kidd's describing. I think it unnerved them. Um, even uh, one of the very hardened seamen who wrote the prophecy in his journal was someone very unflappable. Uh, the fact that he underscored in his journal showed that they were clearly unnerved by it. But I don't think it was for a couple more days until they actually reached the tip of South America that they began to fear that perhaps this prophecy would be correct. What what has happened to the squadron so far as they're about to hit the tip of South America? I mean, what has the what has the the uh, experience been like so far? Well, it's already been plagued by disease. They've been weakened by a terrible typhus outbreak. So many of them, or a good number of them, had already died. When they had stopped in St. Catherine, they had to bury several more. They celebrated Christmas with very few festivities. Um, Mm. And so they were already um, trepidations, let's say, about how this expedition was going. Um, But the true terror of what was about to happen was a few days away. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about what happens as they get to the bottom of South America. They're near, I I think by March, they're near Tierra del Fuego. Yes, they are. Many more of them are sick. Set us up for, for what has happened. So they are beginning to get sick and then they, and they begin to round Cape Horn. They come across Tierra Fuego. They go through what's called the Drake Passage, and they are trying to get mm. past the southernmost point of land, which is this island of Cape Horn. And these are among the most violent seas in the world. And the reason is in part because it's the one place in the world where the seas flow around the earth completely uninterrupted. They travel 13,000 miles without ever being blocked or, 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 or softened by land. And so they accumulate enormous power. A wave during a storm at Cape Horn can dwarf a 90-foot mast. There are the strongest currents on Earth around Cape Horn. And then there are the winds, which can accelerate to hurricane force often and can even reach as much as 200 miles per hour. Herman Melville, who later rounded the horn joining that elite club, compared it to a descent into hell in Dante's Inferno. <laughs> to remind our, our listeners here, the, the crews of these ships are now, many have died, many are very, very sick, and many are sick with scurvy. And I don't want to miss this because you're description of what it's like to have scurvy, uh, I think bears some, <laughs> some yes. lingering. On. Yeah. So it's, so two things there to be, before we even mention scurvy, what is, okay. what's really important to understand is that, you know, these ships were very complex instruments and machineries that involved a lot of kind of engineering to operate. And they involved a lot of people. They required a lot of people on deck. And so here they are in what one seaman described as the perfect hurricane. That's what he wrote in his account, the perfect hurricane, where they are just being battered about by these seas, seas that are, um, you know, just dwarfing the ship and flooding it, carrying people overboard. They know in that moment that the only, you know, the, in order to persevere, they will need everybody. They will need every hand, every operable hand. And it's right around them when they begin to suffer um, and scurvy begins to spread at an increasing rate. And um, it was scurvy was the great enigma of the age of seal. They didn't know what, what caused it. And many of the men, their, um, their, their hair 
begins to fall out and their teeth begin to fall out. Even the, the cartilage that seemed to, that held together their bones seemed to be coming undone. There was one seaman who had been in a battle 50 years earlier where he had fractured a bone in that battle that obviously fractured long since healed and suddenly just cracked apart in the very same part 50 years mm. later. Um, and then, and this I had no idea about scurvy is, you know, it's a vitamin deficiency and along with other vitamin deficiency, um, one, once you would described it as the disease as getting into the men's brain and them mm. rave, going raving mad. Oh. It really affected their sensibilities um, as they, some of them descended into, into a kind of lunacy. And hundreds and hundreds of the men perished. Their bodies um, were essentially just thrown overboard at that point. Um, there's a line, one of the seamen on board of the wager was a midshipman named John Byron who was 16, year old, 16 years old when the voyage began. And he would go on to become the grandfather, the poet Lord Byron. And the poet Lord Byron described, uh, who was influenced by uh, John Byron's account, he described, you know, these bodies. He, I think he has a line in his poetry where he says something, something to the effect of, without a grave, unknelled, uncoffined, and mm. unknown. And that's how they oh. go off into the depths of the sea. And so the ships at that point, not only are they breaking up hard in the storm, they are losing their men, enough men to properly operate them. Some of the ships don't even have enough men to work the sails anymore. What are the captains doing? The captains are struggling death. Some of them were sick too. Um, uh, captain Cheap on the, the captain of the wager was suffering from scurvy. He's trying to hold the men together, trying to get around Cape Horn and, and trying to stir enough men to keep them on deck to work the ship. Um, it's critical for them and they're desperate to try to keep the ships together because they know in the squadron, if, if, if a ship is separated or lost and something were to happen, there would then be nobody to rescue them. So they are having their men fire their guns repeatedly to signal their location. But of course, in the booming wind and in the deepening storm and mist and fogs and swells of waves, they all become separated and the wager ultimately finds itself self all alone, left to its own destiny. I mean, this is where I have a note in the book that things really start to go wrong. <laughs> it is. Like, I have to say, it is one of those oh things where every wish. Yeah, every time you think something can't get worse, I, I, I forgive <laughs> poor readers. I warn you now, it gets worse. I know. I know. I, I mean, as as David has noted, ships in the squadron have started to vanish. There's desperate illness. The wager, which is is kind of the the central character, I guess, in in your book, is swept onto the rocks in rolling seas. What happens? I mean, the description is wonderful here. Can you just describe for us what it might have been like to be aboard that ship uh, oh, yeah. as they're headed that, for the rocks? Yeah. yeah, and we have a pretty good sense because we have their accounts, journals. So they, so. Um, Cheap continues, gets the ship around, the men get around Cape Horn and they're going up the coast of Chile along the uh, Patagonian coast of Chile. They're hoping to reach a rendezvous point which Anson had given them uh, if they were ever separated. So that's what they're trying to get. But their estimation of their longitude turns out to be not only wrong, but wrong by hundreds of miles. And suddenly they are barreling toward land in a gulf that's now known as the Gulf of Sorrows or as some prefer to call it, the Gulf of Pain. And in there, they hit a submerged rock. They feel this great jolt. The ship is suddenly teetering there. The rudder shatters. A two-ton anchor falls through the bottom of the ship, leaving a gaping hole. Mm -hmm. Then another wave comes and it kind of sweeps the ship off, uh, off of uh this rock, and it's suddenly careening through this mindful of rocks without a rudder, uh, with water pouring uh, through the ship. And you have to understand the, the, the terror that, that everybody on that ship would have felt and did felt because, uh, first of all, many seamen back then didn't even know how to swim. 
Um, it's not like today where most seamen probably have some sense of swimming. Seamen back then, I'm not quite sure why, but most of them didn't know how to swim. And so, um, uh, you know, so, and, and, you know, the wager is their only home. I mean, that is their fortress against the elements. And so their ship is now on the verge of going under and breaking apart. And this is where I've asked you to read an excerpt. Um, the wager is sweeping towards land uh, desperately, uh, I, I guess, filled with desperate men and really damaged. And um, it, here we are at, uh, at how the men are experiencing this. Yes. Um, many of the men prepared to die. Some fell to their knees, reciting prayers in the spray. Lieutenant Baines retreated with a bottle of liquor. Others, Midshipman Byron noted, became bereaved of all senses, senses like inanimate logs and were bandied to and fro by the jerks and rolls of the ship without exerting any efforts to help themselves. He added, so terrible was the scene of foaming breakers around us that one of the bravest men we had could not help expressing his dismay at it, saying it was too shocking a sight to bear. The man tried to throw himself over the reeling, but was restrained. Another seaman stalked the deck, waving his cutlass and screaming that he was king, the king of England. One veteran sailor, John Jones, tried to galvanize the men. My friends, he shouted, let us not be discouraged. Did you never see a ship amongst breakers before? Let us try to push her through them. Come, lend a hand. Here is a sheet and here is a brace. Lay hold. I don't doubt, but we may save our lives. His courage inspired several officers and crewmen, including Byron. Some grabbed ropes to set the sails. Others frantically pumped and bailed the water. Bulkley, the gunner, attempted to maneuver the ship by manipulating the sails, pulling them one way and then the other. Even the helmsman, despite his inoperable wail, remained at his post insisting that it would be unbecoming to desert the wager as long as it stayed afloat. And astonishingly, that much maligned ship kept going. Hemorrhaging water, she sailed on through the Gulf of Pain, without a mast, without a rudder. The men quietly cheered her on. Her fate was theirs, and she fought with all she was worth, proudly, defiantly, nobly. At last, she crashed into a cluster of rocks and began ripping apart. The two remaining masts started to fall and were cut down by the men before they could pull the ship entirely over. The bowsprit cleaved, windows burst, tree nails popped, planks shattered, cabins collapsed, decks caved in. Water flooded the lower portions of the ship, snaking from chamber to chamber, filling nooks and crannies. Rats scurried upward. The men who had been too sick to leave their hammocks drowned before anyone could rescue them. As the poet Lord Byron wrote in Don June of a sinking ship, it makes a scene men do not soon forget, for they always remember what breaks their hopes or hearts or heads or necks. The wager, having improbably survived this far, offered one final gift to its inhabitants. Providentially, we struck fast between two great rocks, John Byron noted, sandwiched the wager did not sink completely, at least not yet. And as Byron climbed to a high point on the vessel's ruins, the sky cleared enough for him to see beyond the breakers. There, shrouded in mist, was an island. <laughs> David Gran reading from his new book, The Wager. Okay, I, I want to come back to something you alluded to a few minutes ago, which is how you know such vivid detail of what this was like to experience it and then what came after um you as i understand it you have held or you have actually seen the documents that were on board this ship and the accounts that some of the sailors wrote during and after is that right yeah it's remarkable that um there are a, a, an enormous trove of first-hand materials that arrived john bulkley kept the journal he was a compulsive diarist, and that survived the expedition. And there are also, and then many of them, the, the few survivors would end up writing accounts and narratives and giving testimony. 
And then um, there are also a number of documents which survive from the expedition, including log books, um, uh, muster books, um, other journals. And it, it's just kind of remarkable that some of these documents had survived typhoons and or shipwreck wow. and, and survived these, these elements. And so there is a remarkable treasure trove of documents that allows you to really reconstruct and visually see what happened to these men, both during the expedition. Um, and then I hate to say it, once they're on the island where the real hell begins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if you think this is bad, it hasn't even started yet. So 145 men out of the 250 survived the wreck of the wager, if I have these numbers right. And some of them are able to make it to an island that I think we should say they're going to find very difficult to escape from. What was it about the geography and the placement of the island that was so imprisoning, that made it so difficult to get off of it? Yeah, so when they get to the island, about 145, just as you said, uh, get to the island uh, using a kind of a, basically like a rowboat, a small transport boat, ferrying people back and forth. Um, and initially they hope, well, maybe this will be our salvation. Um, but when they get there, they discover that the island is barren, it is desolate, it is windswept, it is mountainous, it is covered in a dense foliage that makes it virtually impossible to walk over any kind of distances. And what's more, they can find virtually no food. Um, one British officer later uh, described the island as a place where the soul of man dies in him. You know, I, I wondered how much castaway literature you you read maybe along with all the, the historical documents because, you know, anything from Defoe's Robinson Crusoe to Life of Pi by Jan Martel, I mean, was any of that influential in the way you tried to imagine what this was like for these for these people? Well, I did read Castaway Literature, and I read it, though, for very kind of, often for a very specific reason, is that, you know, this book, one of its larger themes is the way we tell stories, the way we shape mm -hmm. our stories, the way we try to emerge as heroes, and also the way nations try to shape their stories. Um, and also how stories influence them. And so the seamen themselves... It, it were influenced by the story of Robinson Crusoe, um, which was a it come out before then. What's so interesting about that is the novel, the fictional account of Robinson Crusoe by Defoe, is actually based on a logbook, a report from an actual a, a account of a, of a British seaman who had been a castaway on this island that becomes known as kind of Robinson Crusoe Island, and. Um, uh, and so when the seamen were actually, and, and someone like John Byron, who loved tales of romance, he had been influenced by that. Um, and, you know, he, Byron had read that account. And, um, and so even when they are coming around uh, Cape Horn, they're all dreaming of trying to get to Robinson Crusoe Island. So not only was I reading the, these accounts, so were they. And Robinson huh. Crusoe is a pretty interesting story because it's one person on the island um, and in many ways, it's kind of a pain to colonialism because it shows how this person kind of masters the environment. Um, and so the castaways soon discover that there is a fundamental difference between the story of Robinson Crusoe and themselves, which is Robinson Crusoe had been alone and the, he did not have to deal with perhaps the most <laughs> desperate and unpredictable creature of all, of all which is his fellow man. Mm. I, I, I think that what you've said about the way they're they're thinking about how these stories are are getting told. I mean, it's clear that some of the people who were writing accounts of this are thinking about how they're going to be consumed. I mean, they're thinking about an audience taking in and reading these accounts of what happened, which I thought was really remarkable in the middle of all of this as dangerous as it was, as life-threatening as it was, 
some of these these crew members and leaders are thinking about how they're going to shape the story and how an audience is going to hear that story. Yes. And vying for it. Yes, this was really at a time of the kind of emergent and explosion of a certain kind of literature, travel literature, which really kind of grew out of the format of captains and lieutenants logbooks, but with a little bit more individualism creeping into them. And there was greater literacy, uh, particularly in England and in Europe, um, and also cheaper printing. And so there was this great explosion of these kind of books, of these sea tales. And so, yes, many of them were vying um, to see who would be able to tell their account. But then what's so critical is when they get to the island um, and they begin to descend into a kind of Lord of the Flies, a warring factions, they become very conscious of the fact that if they ever do get off the island and make it back to England, um, they may be summoned to face be face a court-martial for their alleged crime. So they are already even on the island. You know, they've taken some paper and quills off the, and salvaged them from the ship. And they're already creating documents and petitions, um, already trying to shape their story to create kind of an unassailable story of the sea that will withstand the attrition of a trial and public scrutiny. I found that absolutely astonishingly here these men are starving on an island facing death and yet they are documenting and shaping their stories you know and captain cheap um who has somehow amazingly survived illness and the wreck he is trying to uh i guess enforce british naval codes on the men even as they're splitting up into factions and that ends up being pretty important to who chooses which side describe describe how the men end up separating and how yes visceral um and antagonistic it becomes yeah as they begin to starve and, and you know the depletion of food can really have uh, corrosive effects and make it extremely difficult um, on human beings and on their psyches to work together it's well documented in studies and uh, as they're on this island stuffing, they begin to fracture. There's one small group that the others refer to as the seceders. And they basically just break, a, break apart from the main encampment and kind of roam around like pillaging marauders. And they're kind of violent and terrifying. Then the main encampment, um, there is a group led by Captain Cheap, who, as you said, uh, believes he should still be the commander because he that was his title on the ship and he is still trying to govern and maintain cohesion which he thinks is essential by preserving the rules and regulations that had existed on the ship but more and more of the men are gravitating towards john bulkley the gunner and john bulkley was in many ways the most skilled seaman on the wager and he was also an instinctive leader but because he did not come from the aristocracy he knew he could you know, it was unlikely that he would ever become a commander of a ship. But now on the island in this democracy of suffering, he suddenly begins to emerge as a commander. And he even invokes phrases that resonate with us today, these populist phrases like life and liberty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the middle of all this, they're, I guess they're anguishing over how to get off the island. And I'd say they, they come up with some pretty ingenious solutions. I don't want you to give too much away because, um, well, we want everybody to buy the book, right? And, <laughs> and be uh, <laughs> suspenseful about, about how this happens. But I will say what they come up with at long last seems pretty ingenious to me. What did you read about how they were trying to figure out you know, how to get away from the island? Yeah, I mean, they do come up with an ingenious method. And, that, and that's what's, you know, again, very interesting about these people because they, um, they're they all deeply human. They're both fallible. And um, the eye then becomes in many ways this kind of laboratory um, mm -hmm. testing the human condition under the most extreme circumstances. And inevitably it begins to reveal their hidden nature, the good and the bad. And so you can see... Um, some remarkable acts of ingenuity and bravery and gallantry on that island and some great wits to survive as they try to come up with a, a, a method, a means uh, to get off this island in these seas. Um, and then, you know, a moment later, uh, you'll be shocked by, you know, just uh, 
an act of brutality. So you mm-hmm. kind of see it all, but they, the, the, the way they um, go about trying to figure out how can they get a vessel or some way to transport them, um, they show real ingenuity and engineering and at least for a brief moment, even work together. <laughs> You know, the other thing that kept occurring to me through this is they are testing some pretty different ideas of what nobility is under the most extreme conditions. And I think if you had asked these, the leaders, you know, as they headed out on on what they thought was going to be a successful mission, they probably would have described a pretty specific idea of what nobility was. What happens to that sense, do you think, as, as it's really tested? Yeah, so, um, and, you know, they would have set out with these kind of notions and ideals of duty, mm-hmm. honor, glory for the empire, uh, patriotism, um, imperialism. Um, they would have consciously or unconsciously have been filled with those ideas. Um, and... When they get uh, on the island, you see a kind of fracturing and you hear they actually have these philosophical debates about mm-hmm. these issues, even while they're hungry. So, so Captain Cheap continues to believe in this code and define honor as sacrifice for the empire, sacrifice um, you know, for duty, even if it means death. And he is determined to still fulfill the ambitions of the empire and fulfill these kind of ambitions of glory. And Bulkley, uh, you know, he starts to kind of say, you know, we're in a state of nature right now. He, they actually use that phrase in one of the documents. They say, we don't really have, uh, you know, the old rule book doesn't quite apply here. <laughs> um, and maybe we should come up with our own rules to try to figure out how we're going to live and get off the island. And, you know, he kind of says, you know, I think we've sacrificed, I mean, he doesn't quite say it this way, but we've kind of sacrificed enough. And, um, you know, the implication of, 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 of his kind of rallying of the men is, let's get the hell out of here and go home. <laughs> <laughs> enough with honor, duty, and patriotism. Right. And uh, I, it's basically survival at this point. It's life or death. And we've had enough of all these grand uh, notions. Um, and more and more of the men, uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, share his, his viewpoint. Yeah, I, I just, I thought this was really astonishing. I mean, there's a, there's a point where Captain Cheap decides that they have to hold a trial on the island of these men who, I think they've, what, they've robbed the food stores? Is yeah, that, they have a store, yeah. a store tent they've created where they store the few provisions they have that have to be rationed out, you know, very little rationed out. But it's they're basically only life sources in that little tent. And you write here, even in the midst of the vast wilderness, far from England and the prying eyes of the Admiralty, Cheap and many of the castaways clung to Britain's naval codes. They hastily arranged a public trial with its elaborate rituals. Several officers were appointed to serve as judges. According to naval regulations, they were supposed to be impartial, though in this case, no one could have been unaffected by the alleged crimes. And then the defendants are found guilty. Again, David, they are creating a record, right, that they believe if they ever get off the damn island is going to be important to the proceedings. Is that right? Yes. Yes, they're trying to create a record. And I think they are, you know, to some extent, genuinely torn between two worlds, two, you know, the codes and the civilization that they had been steeped in and that operated on a ship. And this newfound world where many of these, um, you know, codes are being tested. And so there you kind of see this kind of weird, it's not quite a kangaroo court, but you know, they're just, they're kind of, it has the formality of a traditional court martial, which is what they would have done on the ship. Uh, but it's done very hastily. You know, the, 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 it's, it's, it's raining or sleeting during some of these trials. Um, and, and they, they end up administering very extreme punishments uh, to the men, but they're very conscious of documenting it, justifying their actions, creating a written record. They really have a sense of the power of contemporaneous documentation. 
You know, the other thing I thought about is you are only a leader if if people will follow. Yes. And what happens to these aristocratic leaders, although Captain Cheap, as, as you noted, was not an aristocrat. I don't but think. But he definitely he? did come. He, well, he did come from the, a wealthy class, but he was okay. plagued by deaths. So, yes, he personally was plagued by deaths, but he definitely came from a higher echelon of society. So you are you are only possessive of authority if people are willing to follow that authority. And yes. that's constantly challenged yes. on the Tests island. Yes, the very nature of leadership. What is leadership? Is it a title that you behold? Is it simply given to you and bestowed upon you? Must you earn it and demonstrate it? And all these things are brought into question. And, you know, what makes a leader? You know, is it, um, you know, is it stubbornness, bravery, doggedness, or is it also compassion, sympathy, cajoling? Is it inspiring? Um, is it cunning? <laughs> all these things mm. play out and you kind of see them all. Um, and Bulkley has a certain instinctive ability about leadership that in many ways Captain Chief lacks that he may have had in a different environment, but at least under these circumstances, he is being tried. He's a tempestuous figure, and he's also very insecure about his authority. And anybody who knows, you know, the, some of the most dangerous and perilous forms of leadership are insecure leaders. Hmm. Um, we will, I think our listeners will know that um, part of what happens on the island survives because there are survivors, yes. and they make it back to England. And again, we're going to leave some of the details of how this happens to the reading of the book. But the court-martial that then follows is trying to resolve different accounts of what actually happened on the island. Now, tell me a bit about the documents that portrayed two very different accounts and how you tried to reckon with that, of trying to figure out what really went on. Yeah, so throughout the whole book, um, I narrate it primarily from the perspective of three different mem members of the ship, John Bulkley, Captain Cheap, and the midshipman, John Byron. And so you can see, even early on, these kind of warring accounts, how they shade certain events, what they tell, what they don't tell. One officer may say, uh, I, proceed, I was forced to proceed to extremities. And then another account will say, no, he actually shot the man right in the head. And so right away, you could see how some are leaving out certain facts and burnishing certain facts. What is remarkable is that after uh, several of the castaways make it back uh, to England, they have, you have to imagine, understand, they have survived typhoons. They have survived tidal waves. They have survived scurvy. They have survived shipwreck. They have survived starvation. They have survived these incredibly survived violence on the island, uh, revolts on the island, um, incredibly long castaway voyage. Now, after waging all these wars against the elements and whatnot, they are suddenly summoned to face this court martial where they could be hanged, and they begin to wage a furious war over the truth. Each offering a competing version of what happened, trying to portray themselves, each individual, as the hero of the story, uh, to live with what they have done or haven't done. There's a famous line uh, that many will know from Joan Didion, where she says, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live. But in, their, in this case, it's quite literally true. They better tell a convincing tale or they may not live. Um, they may be hanged. And so you see this battle. And what's to me, so interesting, and one of the things that really drew me to tell this story was how much of it has surprising resonance and echoes mm -hmm. with our own contemporary turbulent times. Just like today, there was disinformation, there were competing narratives, um, there were even allegations of a kind of fake news. <laughs> That's right. And, and it, just like today, some of the loudest voices ended up, again, being the ones that prevailed down through history, right? That's Who just, knows what would have happened if some of the lesser members of the crew who didn't yes. have as much power would have told their story and their perspective. That's exactly right. And, and, and you know, 
one of the things that the story shows is not only do these individuals end up shaping their stories, but um, to serve their self-interest, but so do nations and empires. And you see in this case, it's an incredibly illustrative case of how empires preserve their, their powers by the stories and the versions of history that they want to show, what, that they want to tell. But they also preserve their power by the stories that they don't tell and by the silences they impose, by the pages of history they rip out. And there are stories about this voyage that cannot be told um, because there are no records and because they were not uh, ever documented. And I'll just give one very important case in point. There was a free black seaman on the wager named John Duck. John Duck had survived along with the other castaways coming around the horn, had survived all the elements, had survived the castaway voyage. But unlike the other survivors, he never gets to tell his story and give his testimony um, because he is kidnapped and sold into slavery. And there is no record of what happened to him. So this is both a book that documents the war over stories, the latter, the latter stories or the victorious stories that prevail, but also those powerful silences, uh, which I think also should hopefully now speak through the ages, um, but that were imposed to preserve power. Uh, I see that Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio are teaming up again to make a movie of the book. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, I, I feel very <laughs> blessed by, by that. How yes. exciting. I, yes, yes. Did they, they teamed up for The Lost City of Z, your other book? No, they teamed up for Killers of the Flower Moon, which oh, is coming. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. so Killers of the Flower Moon, which is premiering at Cannes in May, and then we'll be out in October. So I was, you know, blessed to watch how they worked and adapted the wager along with uh, so many others and how closely they worked with the Osage Nation that fierce commitment they showed to that story. Um, so when they said, hey, you know, we, we like the wager, can we develop that? I was like, ah, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Go right ahead. Come on board. I hope we don't sink. <laughs> oh, I, well, I mean, watching them film this, I assume you'll be on set for some of that is going to be just extraordinary. I would think. Yes, I, I, I hope this. I, I don't know how you. I don't know how you film it, see. So uh, I hope they. I hope they can create an artificial suspense, so we don't have to. You don't have to be like you know, go around Cape Horn. I don't know the level of determination for authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> for Killers of the Flower Moon, let me tell you, they were they were so devoted um, uh, to authenticity, to getting the story right. Uh, to working with Osage Nation, filming on location, uh, using the Osage language, Osage, you know, designing costumes and, and everything and acting in the movie. And so uh, doing that, who, who knows what they're up for, for The Wager. <laughs> David Grand's new book is called The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny and Murder. Thank you very much. Fun to have you. It was so great to be here. And I will only say that I, I hope if this conversation achieved one thing is that you will feel like your day is far more peaceful. <laughs> For sure. 